Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. In association with Viatel Technology Group, IT leaders breathe easy with Viatel Managed Cybersecurity. Viatel.com. This is News Talk. Welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, Bobby Healy of Manadrones will join me to talk about the company's continuous expansion and changing the game when it comes to food delivery. Carl Henry will talk through the key metrics for measuring your health with a wearable. And as ever, I'll answer your tech questions. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by emailing techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. But we're going to start with Bobby Healy of Mana Drones. Bobby, how are you? I'm very good, Jess. How are you? I'm great. I always get excited talking to you because you are, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, but you are kind of the mad scientist type tech entrepreneur that I love talking to because your vision and drive kind of just, it gets me a little bit buzzed for what's going on in the tech world. Um, As we've spoken about a million times uh, on this show with you, Mana Drones is continuing to go from strength to strength. Can you just bring us up to speed with what's happened over the last few months since we've spoken to you? Sure. Um, last few months, we uh, got our European-wide BV loss license, which means we can fly any number of aircraft per operator. So full beyond visual line of sight, which technically um, is a big deal. We're the only ones in the world to have anything like that. Um, and And then... As probably everyone's aware, we launched in Blanchardstown, um, D15, actually, more appropriately. And we're flying about a four-kilometer radius from uh, Blanchardstown Shopping Centre, which means we can reach about 150,000 residents, 43,000 air codes. And that is the world's largest uh, location of drone delivery now. Like, it's incredible how what seemed like a mad vision. I remember talking to you on a casino floor in Las Vegas a few years ago about this notion and he- hearing the vision. And I was kind of nodding along going, yeah, Bobby, sure. I'll talk to you in 20 years when this gets going. It, like, what was the thing? What was the key to unlocking the potential of MANA and making this go from an idea on a post-it note to the reality? I mean, the biggest differentiator, like we have a good tech team, we've raised, you know, a ton of venture capital and, you know, a really strong team in man is 120 of us now. But the big difference in perspective, right, Ireland now is the most important place in the world for drone delivery to back gardens. And it's largely because Europe has a great solid set of regulations, which usually is not what you want, but in, in our case, regulations are exactly what you need. Regulations to govern safety, both air and ground safety, governance of the airlines, you know, processes, all that stuff. So Europe has played a blinder there. It's ahead of the rest of the world. And then within Europe, uh, the IAA and the Irish Aviation Authority that regulated us in Ireland have been a partner in this and have made it, I won't say easy, in fact, quite the opposite. They've made it really hard <laughs> to get regulated, but... They've been a willing partner that's invested on their side to make it happen. And as as we speak today, Ireland is the best place in the world to launch a drone delivery program. And it's because of strong government policy flowing into strong regulation of the airspace. Yeah, tech entrepreneurs, I'm sure you have kind of a love-hate relationship with regulation. But as you just explained there now, it's actually a good thing because it, it kind of stops people bitching and moaning going, oh, it, it's unregulated or they're doing what they want. What are the considerations that you guys need to take into account when it comes to this 
deliveries, like the last mile delivery. So for example, if I'm in Dublin 15 and I want to get a burrito or whatever it is, what are all the hoops that you guys have to jump through to, to enable me to get my food that little bit quicker? Yeah, I mean, so we're, we're licensed. It's called an LUC. We're essentially a licensed airline. Um, and our operation, everything we do, the way we do it, every interaction with the general public and, and our staff and the aircraft is all in document and approved by the regulator. So we have to do it a specific way that we've agreed with the regulator. And so uh, there's no question mark. If, if any member of the general public wants to know how we operate, well, we're governed or, or regulated, should I say, by the IAA, and they can either ask us or the IAA. And the laws that we operate under are actually EU-wide laws. So it's all very clear. And the population we fly over can feel very safe that we're flying a safe operation with no compromise on safety, neither in the air for general aviation. If you're flying into Dublin Airport, you know there's no risk of our drones going anywhere near there. And similarly, if you're living in D15 and you want to know what's going on, um, all the rules and all of our permissions are very clearly documented. So I think it's transparent. Uh, I would say it's, I won't say next level tough, but it's very, very tough uh, to get regulated in this space. And, you know, most people do, are, don't realize this, but the our, the IAA, our aviation authority, is one of the most industrial ones in Europe because 90% of transatlantic flights fly through our airspace. So you have a very industrial scale. And I would say, you know, obviously all eyes on safety, but also very commercially expedient regulator that's enabled the industry and you're going to see a ton of drone technology companies coming to Ireland I would say as a result of that. And that all sounds great in terms of the delivery of service uh, as well as the opportunity that comes from this type of technology but uh, one of the concerns that often gets raised is like you just meant, alluded to it there, just how precious our airspace is. So what what's the boundaries or what are the parameters to ensure that there, is, there isn't sort of a mid-air drone clash or crash or whatever might potentially dreadfully happen? Yeah. I mean, that, that's actually a surprisingly easy part of what we do. Um, like allocating the airspace between us and, for example, Google have a drone delivery project called Wing. They're flying in Terenure. They were flying in Lusk right beside us in Balbriggan as well. And both our companies have joined up our airspace management systems so that if, before we take off, we let them know. We tell them the airspace we're going to use. We allocate it and off we go. Completely safe, deterministic, no risk at all, and actually not difficult to do. And similarly for traditional aviation, like your ambulance helicopter, police helicopter, general aviation, we use ADSB, which is where those uh, traditional aircraft have transponders. Our aircraft and our system see those transponders. So we know if they're going to do an incursion into our air- airspace and we don't take off. And that's that's the simple version. And an even simpler version is we don't fly over 100 metres and they don't fly below uh, four or 500 metres. And so it's very easy to do vertical separation between us and them. Uh, so that's actually one of the easier problems to solve, I think. Okay, well, well, and I think it's nice to hear that it's an easy problem to solve because on a superficial level, not even a superficial level, but I guess people's understanding of drone technology and the airspace navigation and all the rest is probably coloured a little bit by the instances where Dublin Airport has had to shut because some person is flying a drone nearby. From your point of view, 
how are you balancing the messaging that, you know, we're not the messers who are going to disrupt, you know, 100 flights at Dublin Airport or Cork Airport or wherever it might be. This is actually a practical solution that's benefiting the people of this country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the word drone is a bad word, mostly um, because of Gatwick Airport, Dublin Airport and some handful of very irresponsible users that, that know full well what they're doing and intentionally doing it. Um, are causing news disruption and and just a, a negative cloud around anything that has the word drone in it. But I, I think it's fair to say that any good commercial operator like MANA and any of the other great drone companies that are in Ireland, you know, we obey the rules. We have licenses from the IAA and we don't, you know, do anything other than obey the rules within those licenses. So you're never going to find an aircraft from MANA doing an incursion into an area that it doesn't have approval to fly into. And there's no way in hell that anyone should be flying within several kilometers of an active airport. It's just it's just an absolute no-go zone. And so uh, part of our process is educating the local community and working with the IAA to get clear communications about the rules of the road or the rules of the air in our case and how to think about companies like us. And the, the general public should feel very, very confident, very safe uh, about commercial operators like us, not just us, but, you know, Google, Amazon and all those wedding photographers, all those RTE filmers, the news talk guys with drones, everyone that uses drones for professional use obeys the rules and they're very clear and not difficult to follow. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Like the people who are using this as part of their jobs or, you know, as their entire company in your case, we obviously don't want to get slaps on the wrist for breaking the rules at all. It's in our interest to do it responsibly and so on. Um, another question that crops up, and again, I'm putting them to you just to myth bust a little bit. The concerns around cameras in the drones and, you know, if I am in D15 and you're bringing me my food with a drone, in terms of my privacy and cameras and all that jazz, can you just explain how that works? Yeah, um, and that's that's the that is the top question we get about privacy and recording all that stuff. So the way it works is there's a lidar on the camera on the drone and a camera. The lidar is used for altitude detection and for checking that the ground is flat and inanimate. And then when we arrive over your house to deliver, we descend to 15 meters before we deliver, and right before we approve the delivery we show our operator an image of what's underneath because we won't deliver to a, an area where there's a person there. So we we require for our customers not to be underneath the aircraft when we deliver or even within four meters of the aircraft. And so one of our operators will check that still, validate it, and then approve the delivery. And that's a safety mechanism purely. Nothing leaves the aircraft. Nobody can log into that system and none of that data can get off the aircraft. So it, it couldn't be more private. Okay, well, that is an important one. Um, tell me a little bit about the drones that you guys use, because we, we've spoken about this before. Um, like, this isn't a drone that you could buy in Harvey Norm that you guys are using. No, I wish you could. Um, <laughs> yeah, you have to you have to build it from the ground up. So it's a very, very specific drone. It's very large. It's 1.8 meters motor to motor. It's a thing large flying golden retriever with propellers. Um <laughs> But it's got all these safety mechanisms on it. So it's got three flight computers, three GPS units, like multiple antennas, uh, failover battery system, power system, eight motors when you only need four, all sorts of redundancy, which wouldn't make any sense for a drone that you'd buy in Harvey Normans because there's no world where you'd be allowed to fly that drone over a populated area. It's just too unsafe. 
So there is no commercially available aircraft that we could use. And therefore, it's, you know, it's a requirement to really build your own and prove to the aviation regulator that it's safe. And we've done 170,000 flights with our aircraft. One of our aircraft alone has done 20,000 flights. You wouldn't do more than 100 flights with that drone you'll buy in Harvey Norman before it'll fall apart. Yeah. And talk to me about the drone operators then or or how the drone operates. How much human, not only supervision, but interaction is required on both ends? So from the MANA point of view and then the end customer point of view? Yeah, so we have two types of people that work for us in operations. One of them is called a loader and you could compare them to the existing, say, delivery driver and they just take the cargo from the vendor, the restaurant, Boojum, let's say, and they load it onto the aircraft. That's their job. They weigh it, they tag it, and they load it, and they step back. And then the other person is what we call a dispatcher. And the dispatcher is is sitting in a dark room with connectivity. They can see all of the airspace that they're managing. And that dispatcher can manage up to 20 aircraft at a time. And their role is basically making sure the airspace is clear. If the ambulance helicopter or police helicopter, any type of emergency happens, they will respond to that and ground our aircraft or make them return to base immediately. And other than that, they're they're simply an observer job where they're monitoring things. There's no way to fly the aircraft, to control the aircraft in any way remotely. It's all done on the edge. And you have to do that in aviation. It has to be all deterministic. It has to be everything you do has to be 100 percent reliable. So you can't rely on communications, either radio comms or cell comms, any of those to control the aircraft. The aircraft has to be able to make its own decisions, fly on its own. And and whatever happens, that it can make decisions to make sure that the safety element is there. So um, it's a very human light operation so there's no way a human mistake could cause a safety incident and then where we scale up in terms of people will be those people that load the aircraft so there's definitely going to be a transition of people that work for delivery companies going on motorbikes or electric bikes or cars or whatever uh, going to work for drone companies instead they'll be much more efficient um, but they'll have nicer warmer less rainy jobs yeah, and we know that safety is a huge issue for people. Like we, we've had so many instances, very tragic instances of um, whether it's attacks or accidents and so on. So in a way, getting people off the roads is a good thing and it makes pure sense. In terms of the scalability of this, like what's the mission and what's the, I suppose, roadmap for making that mission a reality? Yeah, so... Um... It's a good point about taking cars off the road. Um, the green part of this, so, so we, we describe ourselves as we're quieter, greener, cheaper, faster and safer than any other way to move products around. And we've already flown 3000 kilometers in Blanchardstown and the equivalent journeys by cars would have been about eight to 9000 kilometers. So that's eight or 9000 kilometers we've already taken off the roads of Blanchardstown in just over a week. And um, so if you expand that, the the food delivery industry today does 5.2 billion deliveries a year across the world, top five aggregators, and it's growing at 15%. Our, our mission is, look, we produce zero CO2 when we fly. Our end-to-end carbon footprint is less than an electric bicycle doing the same journey. So if we can knock any percentage of those 5 billion road-based deliveries off the road, that's a pretty good result. 
And from a mana point of view, like, are, is that something that you're ready, willing and eager to do? Like, is it scalable at the drop of a hat from your point of view or is it came or came? I wish um, this is as hard a business as you could imagine to scale because we have to manufacture robots. We have to deploy them and we have to operate them. Um, so there's no, we, we're not going to be licensing the technology to anyone else. So think of us as, you know, an aircraft manufacturer, an airline, an airport and the reta- retailers within the airport. So for us to scale in, in numbers, Ireland needs about, we think about five 5,000 aircraft for full production for really to be operating the whole country. UK needs about 55,000 aircraft. The United States need about 600,000 aircraft. So the numbers are are mind-boggling. And and just for the UK market, for 10% of the UK market, we would need to invest about $500 million just to power that. So it's not just that's going to take a long time or that it's hard, but it's going to take a huge amount of capital as well. And the nice thing is, though, is that it's already profitable. So every flight we do is it costs us less to operate than the revenue we get from that flight. So the fundamentals of the business or the unit economics are solid. And so it's not like, uh, you know, ride hailing, you know, taxi hailing where they lose money in a lot of orders or, or even existing food delivery that loses a lot of money for a lot of orders. We're already at a point where we can make money if we did scale this business. So good fundamentals, which means it's a very investable business. Mm. Um, I need to ask you before I let you go about AI, because it's the only thing people are talking about in the world of tech for the last, I don't know, 18 months or so. I haven't heard of it. <laughs> Trust me, Bobby, this is a good tip for you now. Um, but, <laughs> but I just wonder, like when you look at AI and you look at some of the conversations that are going on, aside from MANA, but just when you look at the tech landscape, like AI has been around for a long time, right? Do you buy into yeah. this hype? Or are you a little bit of a cynic like me going, keep calm and carry on and let's just feel our way through it before we put our life savings on it? I hate to tell you this, but I'm very excited about it. Um, oh, Bobby. It, it, it doesn't impact our business because AI is, you know, prob- probabilistic models, you know, non-predictable stuff doesn't work very well when you're talking about safety. Um, so it's not really useful for us, but I'll give you an example. Last night I was writing some code, some security code, right, that connects to our cameras that we have at the base. And those cameras look at the takeoff pads and landing pads for the drones. And that code now that I wrote took me about two hours, uh, detects people going towards the pads and stops the aircraft taking off if they're going near the pads, right? That would have taken me a month to write in the good old days. I I wrote it in one night with ChatGPT and it worked. You know, so... The, the, the answer for companies like us and most other companies is these technologies are going to make your employees, you, everyone around you, much more productive if they embrace them. Programmers, engineers, marketing people, copywriters, you name it, they should be able to produce five to ten times as much. So that's exciting because it means the world's going to get a lot more. It's going to go a lot quicker in building whatever solutions we need built. Okay, let's just flesh this out briefly then, right? So if that's the case and and people can produce more, is it going to make us dumber or is it going to make the skills that we have more valuable and we're just going to get more from those skills that we as human beings have? Well, um, it's gonna it's gonna change it's gonna change the way. So we're gonna the programming is an example because that's my thing, right? I'm a programmer, and programmers always 
think that they're gods, right? We all think we're the best programmer we've ever met. And it's, but actually it's just a trade. It's logic. It's, it's sequence of steps and being able to remember them and creating large Lego buildings out of small Lego blocks. That's programming. And so it's not a good use of a human brain to, to sit down at a desk just writing and debugging code all the time when a robot can do it, well, not always perfectly, but nearly always perfectly. So that programmer now becomes, instead of a programmer, they become an architect or you know an engineer that's thinking about what problems to solve and in what order and how to tie all things together and orchestrate lots of components rather than writing individual lines of code and debugging them. That, that guy is worth 10 times. So in other words, they're doing 10 times as much and way, way, way more valuable. And if I look at my marketing team that I have in MANA or I look at my finance team, anyone that's writing an email or writing web copy, there's no way you can compete with GPT or any of the LLM models. There's no way you can compete with them in speed or quality of output. So why, why, why even think about it? So I put it this way. If I was building another business now and, and it wasn't MANA, I would be requiring everyone to show me how they're embracing this technology to go faster and better. Okay, so if you're a college graduate or if you're about to graduate now, uh, would you say as an employer, you know, like get au fait with this because it is the future and you need to know, it's not enough to ask it random facts or whatever. You need to know that it's a creative tool and it's there to, I suppose, augment your brain. Hmm. It's fundamental. Um it's you need to rethink how you approach everything now. I mean, and I'm not overstating this. This is these things are not as smart as the brain because they're very limited in certain ways. But anyone that's leaving college now in engineering or or whatever they're in, if they're not thinking, if they're not learning about these tools and they're not actively thinking how they can do more because of this thing, they're not thinking the right way. And, you know, my my skill set is the easiest one, right? Because <clears throat> programming is the one that's the most obvious to, to rewrite. But there's other ways to think. You can literally ask these bots for ideas on various things. You can, you know, I mean, it can it can be a council for you that has the best advice you could imagine because it's read every single book in every single language that was ever written. And it's real. It's not a, it is in no way, uh, I mean, you're, you're right to be a cynic in certain ways, right? Because certain things is people are over applying AI, right? When they don't understand what AI is. But when you do understand what the core technology is capable of, then you can see, okay, where can you apply this? And the answer is nearly everywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you've you've kind of changed my mind. You've done exactly what I said you do at the start, which is trigger something in my brain. I need to go away and process it for three to five business days or ask ChatGPT what I feel about it. Um, yeah. Well, look, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I really do appreciate your time. Best of luck, and sure, I'll chat to you soon. A pleasure, Jess. Thank you. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now on Thursday's Off The Ball Breakfast, there was a fascinating discussion about an online hate initiative looking to tackle and understand the abuse that sports stars face. Here is a snippet of Aidan Eames and Theo Lynn of DCU speaking to Jerry Gilroy and Owen Sheehan about what they're doing. We're working with the FIA, which is the Sports Federation over Motorsports, um, but it's, a, it's to deal with any sport, so it's not just soccer. Obviously, our team with Gary Sinclair and Colm Kearns, um, 
started off looking at soccer um, and um, I suppose we're seeing online abuse everywhere you know like I, I can give you like highlight examples if you take the Tokyo Olympics <laughs> once the Japanese team went one medal ahead of the Chinese team suddenly we saw this massive flow of online abuse towards Japanese um, athletes you know soccer obviously very well known basketball quite a lot of abuse so all these things are tripping over even in the context um, obviously in DCU we have we have a fine GAA academy going on uh, but even some of our alumni and students who are playing for county teams you know 2021 when Mayo lost Aidan Foley and a lot of those guys got a lot of abuse you know um, and in fairness to GAA when you're looking at that they'll tell you that like some players wouldn't turn up for work just because the amount of abuse they were getting and so there's a across the board we're seeing tennis players like Marine are just dropping out of the sport um, and they're just one part of online abuse like so when we talk about online abuse rightly there's a big focus on hate speech but people forget that online abuse for the people involved in sports is digital hostility so people are getting very heated into heated arguments and they they, they verge on the level of abuse there is offensive language there's a whole range of incivility that's happening and the difficulty is it uh, has an adverse effect both on people's psychological and emotional well-being. Uh, in some instances, there's physical harm resulting from this. And it, it's just growing. And so one of the things that we're seeing in the data right now is that over 15 or 16 years of, for instance, uh, the Euros, we're seeing the same amount of abuse or of, uh, online abuse, but obviously the social media audiences are growing dramatically. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot of different types of abuse and uh, different people targeted, particularly after the World Cup in uh, Qatar. You know, there's a rise of Islamophobia in, in, in that kind of discourse. And so um, even in the Women's World Cup recently, you know, the, the amount of homophobic abuse was, was, was a massive peak. Yeah, that was Aidan Eames and Theo Lynn speaking to Jer and Owen on Off The Ball Breakfast on Thursday. If you want to hear that interview back in full, you can do so by becoming an Off The Ball member. You can just go to offtheball.com forward slash join. Uh, but I thought it was a really interesting initiative because, as we've spoken about in this show, there is so much hate online. And although we are seeing progress in terms of legislation, uh, whether that is the Digital Services Act or appointments to roles such as Neve Hodnett's uh, position as Online Safety Commissioner, there's still so much more that could be done. Uh, so I just thought that was a very thought-provoking chat. But we are going to move things on a little bit from the grim to the exciting in my world. Uh, I wrote about this in the Business Post recently, but I have been wearing an Apple Watch SE and over the last 12 months or so, I have realised that it is a great tool to motivate me to move. And by doing a little bit extra movement every single day, my health has dramatically improved. So I'll give you some embarrassing stats. But in January of last year, I was averaging around 4,000 steps a day. In January of this year, I've been averaging or I did average 14,000 steps a day. I'm not going running marathons. I'm not doing yoga 17 times a day. I'm literally getting out and moving for an hour a day. Doing small things like taking the stairs instead of the lift. Those little bits and pieces. But for me, the Apple Watch has been the key to unlocking it all. But what are the key metrics that we should watch when it comes to our health and well-being and these wearables? 
how do you ensure that you don't get bamboozled by the data? Well, Carl Henry of Operation Transformation and, of course, the uh, personal trainer is with me now. Uh, Carl, how are you? I'm excellent, all the way from West Cork. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, it's great to have you on uh, from your West Cork base and your absolute notions studio that you have. And we could talk for days about your online PT and all that stuff. But what I wanted to talk to you about is a conversation that we've had a few times on Instagram DM. Because people who follow you will know that you are great for your Q&As, you're great for the motivation, for the myth busting around fitness. And I don't want to say weight loss because it's fitness and well-being. Um, And as I said a second ago, over the last year or so, I've become deeply motivated by the stats from my wearable and on the health app on my phone. And I've noticed a dramatic improvement, not only in terms of, you know, weight and water intake and all that kind of stuff, but just how I feel in myself. But there's an awful lot of data that can be difficult to decipher. So to start at the very beginning, do you rate wearables as a good fitness tracking tool or do you think that people can get get too obsessed with them? Yeah, so a great question to open with. I think it depends on the person, right? So like wearable tech is brilliant. Like it's so good and we use it all the time with lots and lots of our clients. Um, It gives you the data, it gives you the motivation, it gives you the kick up the arse if you haven't closed your ring or whatever. And like it's great, but for certain people, they do become obsessed with it, which can be a problem. And then, you know, and that's fine until there's a glitch in it or, or, you know, it's just randomly reads wrong for a certain week and that can really throw people. But like we use it with all our clients and and with obviously the TV show, we use it and we continue to do so because it it's a great way to get people to realize how sedentary they are initially and then what they need to do in terms of general daily movement. If they're exercising hard enough to get the benefits from it, then that brings you to kind of, you know, your sleep, the sleep, the sleep one is probably less accurate, probably by comparison to the rest of it. But then you get that gets you to smart scales, which just deliver content, which will be fairly accurate. Won't be, you know, it won't. It's not a DEXA scan. It's not meant to be a DEXA scan, but it's it's fairly accurate, and that can really give you the nudge to make those changes, to benchmark off those changes, and inevitably, it all comes to the fact that it'll all help you feel well and feel healthy and that's the most important thing of all yeah so between the apple watch se which i mentioned a second ago is what i wear and then i also also have your smart scale my mum bought it for me when uh, your range from duns came out so i have that and i'm not someone who wanted to get obsessed in any way shape or form and it wasn't for me about weight it was just about how i felt because i wasn't sleeping And when I was looking at the difference from when I started moving last January for the first six weeks, I could see by walking for an hour a day, my resting heart rate was coming down. My number of flights of stairs that I was climbing was increasing. Teeny tiny little changes. And I wasn't necessarily breaking a sweat. I was just getting off my arse and moving. And that is something that from the bits that I know about you and the work that you do, you're all about that approach of little and often rather than setting out to run a marathon and giving up three days into training. Yeah, the go hard or go home aspect or approach is not really my own, I have to say. I think I, 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 I think that for certain people it works, but for a lot of people, no. And people have that idea of PTs that that's what we are. We scream and shout all day long and we kind of, you know, push it till you can't walk. Lots of PTs do. Generally, the experienced ones don't. We're around, we're around, we're around a bit longer than that. But yeah, it, it, like 
Okay, so like health and wellness has to be that, right? It has to fit into your life. It has to be achievable. It has to make you feel good and not to be too puffed or too too exhausted. It has to be manageable. And like that, it's every little bit helps. That's the that's the important thing to remember that every little bit of movement. So every flight of stairs you take in the office, for example, helps. Don't look, you're on the fifth floor, I think, in Marconi House or the fourth floor. You have a lot of stairs. But like Every bit of stairs when you're in the supermarket or the shopping center helps. Every time you park further away from the door, that helps. Every bit of protein you get into your your, your meals, well, that helps. So it has to be small than achievable. It doesn't have to be, you know, running marathons or Ironmans or half marathons. It's the on a life level, we are more sedentary and we have to move. And tech gives us the, the, the reminder or the awareness of what we're currently doing. And what we need to do, and it helps us to get to get there, and that's the the beauty of it, really. You know. Yeah, do you know it, it's all so the thing with the Apple Watch, and I, and I wrote about this recently. It's kind of the gamification of it, and so for example, when I leave the office today, I rather than getting on the Lewis at Stevens Green, I'm going to walk three Lewis stops down the track just to try and get my steps in because I've had pretty much an office based day today. And I think those small things really, for me anyway, have really, really helped. But one point that I want to pick up on, and I've seen you mention this a few times in your Q&A, is like, yes, the goal of 10,000 steps is a nice one to have, but you do kind of need to get your heart going, don't you? Yeah, you do. So it's one of the biggest reels we've done on on Instagram. It's got about two and a half million hits, I think, at the minute. And it's all about the 10,000 steps myth, which is that... Okay, it came it came from a marketing campaign in the sixties in 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 Japan or Korea, one of them, and that's where it came from. Uh, it doesn't mean you're, it's you know the golden kind of thing to attain in a day. The more steps, the merrier is the important thing. That that that's what you should really be aiming for. That if it's six thousand, twenty thousand, five, whatever, but whatever you can do and then the more you do uh, the healthier health the healthier that you are the key thing is though there is a difference between movement and exercise so movement is low intensity so if you and i just were going to go for a walk this is movement the level of intensity that you and i are chatting through now we're moving and talking it's movement uh i'm going to use a very scientific term for exercise and that is huffing and puffing <laughs> you should be moving fast enough to be huffing and puffing no matter what exercise you are doing whether it's swimming cycling surfing walking running weights you should be huffing and puffing if you're not huffing and puffing it's not exercise it really isn't it, it's it's many things but it's not exercise to get your heart rate up to get the benefits of movement it needs to be huffing and puffing and when you're huffing and puffing you can still have a conversation you're not fully out of breath, but it's about zone three in terms of heart rate from the science perspective. That's kind of where it is. You're you're working hard enough to get the benefit from it in terms of muscle, in terms of in terms of the fuel you're burning, in terms of the endorphin release from it, in terms of the strength. That's what your listeners need to be attaining attaining for it to become exercise. And you're if you go huff and puff, your Apple Watch will, will beep and it'll tell you you're in the exercise zone or whatever. It's a bit more sciencey, but so on a very basic level, huffing and puffing is where it's at. Mm. Uh, before I let you go, I need to ask: a lot of people will have these aspirations to get fitter and healthier, and I know you always sort of proclaim the "What's your why?" Like, why do you want to get fit and healthy? Is there something that you're willing to work towards or work for? Um, but for those who haven't found the right form of exercise yet, because I really enjoy running now and I'm not a fast runner. My average pace per kilometre is horrific. It's so embarrassing, I won't even say it to you. But the thing is, 
I'm proud of it because again, when I get my little notification that I've run a little bit, I feel great. But how do people find the right for like what is the right exercise? Is it what you enjoy or is it what people see online? Yeah, like online, there's all you know, and I see it on Instagram all the time, and I, I purposely don't use my Instagram to bash other people. It's not my style. I just I couldn't be bothered. Life is too short. Uh, people do try to do it to me every now and again. And it's always the ones who are trying to sell their method or their plan or their really hardcore whatever who come and knock on the door and say, oh, you can't tell people that whatever. Like, no, actually, I can because I'm not selling anything here. I, I'm not, you know, anyway, there we go. So the question was, what's the best exercise? The best exercise is the one that suits you and the one that you have a grow for or a love for. For some people, it's running, walking. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm-hmm. But once it's it's once it's enjoyable and once you're working hard enough, irrelevant of the pace or the speed or the distance, once you on a personal level are challenged by that movement enough to get slightly out of breath or huff and puff or zone three heart rate, that's it. That's the that's the best exercise. There is no one. Like, you know, they all deliver something different, right? So like weight-bearing exercise is brilliant. Weights is amazing. Running or walking is are really good. Swimming is great. Cycling, it doesn't matter. But the key thing is, if you love it, you're more likely to do it. And that's the important bit. It's the doing it consistently over a long period of time that really delivers the end goal. And the end goal for anyone starting out should be aging. Like, you know, you're a lot younger than I am, so you haven't hit the aging thing just yet, but you will at some stage. And when you hit a certain point in life, you begin to think, okay, well, you know, I'm halfway through now or whatever. I want to age better. I want to be stronger. I want to be fitter. I want to be able to, you know, walk unaided when I'm 80. Great goal. But you can only do that by being strong. And, and that's where exercise has a function. It's it's enjoyable and it's stress busting, but actually it's going to keep you at a hospital. It's going to keep you from getting frail. It's going to keep you living the way you want to live longer. And tech supports that. It helps you to do all of those things. And like that metabolic age predictor that we use on Tanita scales and even on my own, that shocks people into getting moving because they might be 50 and they jump on the scales and they might be 65. Now, it's a rough guide, but what it tells us is you don't have enough muscle, you have too much body fat, and we need to sort that out. And that kind of gets people uh, tuned in, you know. So find what you love, do it hard enough that it becomes exercise and you're on the right track for healthy aging and healthy living and use tech to absolutely support that. There's your inspo for the week ahead. Carl Henry, as always, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Great to talk to you, Jess. See you soon. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Uh, coming up in just a few minutes' time, John Fardy will be in with Screen Time. John, What's on the show this week? Well, the big new movie release of the week. You could even say the first part of the year is Dune Part 2. Quite a long movie. Great movie, I have to say. And I'm talking to one of its stars, the great Stellan Skarsgård. I'll also be talking to Mairead Ronan and Jenny Kelly about their favourite movie. And we have the week's other new movie releases in the company of Chris Wasser. Fab. Um, Jenny Mairead's podcast is very funny. Yeah, I listened to a bit of it in advance of talking to them and they are they are great guests to have on a radio show because they are so funny and they know how to talk. <laughs> it's one of those ones that makes you accidentally laugh out loud. Yeah. You know, it, it's exactly, it's my favourite type of audio content where it feels like you're ear wigging in on friends. Um, June part two, right? 
Dune or June? We see, I don't know. Because I'm not sure either. I think it's Dune because people text in and I'm just tired of it. So I think it's Dune. Okay, so we'll say Dune or June. Yeah, Dune or June, yeah. Dune slash June. Um, The posters are everywhere. Yeah. But also the stars, it's got a great cast. I've not seen the first one, but I saw the ensemble on Jimmy Kimmel the other night. Mm -hmm. Every hot young actor in terms of talent and also looks were there chatting away. But it's mad how the movie promo cycle is now less about talking about the project. And like I saw um, Austin Butler and Florence Pugh playing with puppies the other day. Like that's what they're doing and they're probably doing slightly less as well and mm. being more pointed with them and getting them to do these kind of things you know like uh, Paul Meskel and he's one of our fine actors Andrew Scott his name momentarily escaped me who's on with me a couple of weeks ago they did a load of promo for All of Us Strangers where they were interviewing each other mm. and not really talking about the movie it has something to do you know a lot more about this with the age of social media yeah. wherein you do things very quickly. That said, there is a place for the long form film interview where you talk one person to an actor, which screams time exemplifies that there's still a place for that. There's still a place. It's uh, 6 p.m. every week here on yeah. Newstalk on a Saturday and also the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> um, but do you, as so what I wanted to know from you, because I find those puppy interviews really entertaining yeah. and they're kind of funny and they're cute on TikTok and whatever. But as a film buff, mm-hmm. Let's assume I am one. No, the but purpose of this conversation. Like before you were doing this as your job, yeah. did you actually want to hear the actors pontificating about their role and the prep and so on? Well, I do to a certain extent. And I also generally any of these people I'm talking to, you know, 99% of the time I'm a fan of their work. Yeah. And I love to hear about other movies that have been around for a long time. So with Skarsgård, he was in Goodwill Hunting playing the professor that the goodwill goes to and I love talking to him about that kind of stuff so I think there is still a desire particularly people who like TV and movies to talk about the job that they do and also their lives a bit Stellan Skarsgård has eight children how do you have a movie career and he seemed to be hands on with diapers and stuff so I do think diapers is yeah where did, I, where did that come I mean, from nubbies nubbies <laughs> But there is still a place for talking to actors and actresses about the work that they do, as well as, you know, tell me about your favorite piece of fruit to pull up your nose and that's your favorite cake. And, you know, that's not really my bag. You can but, get you all know. those questions and more. <laughs> screen time. Uh, no, I'd love to know what you think. I'm genuinely intrigued by the promo cycle. Is it all too fluffy now? Have we lost the art of conversation and highlighting the skill and the talent that these people have. Uh, let me know what you think. Techtalk at newstalk.com. Uh, John will be here in just a few minutes' time. John, thanks so much. Thank you, Jessica. Right, before I let you go, we have just enough time to delve into the mailbag. As ever, if you have a question that you want answered, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com or if you want, send me a WhatsApp voice note. Uh, you can record your question, your query, your issue and send it to 087-1400-106. Right, we have an email here from Una, who says, uh, I am looking for a mobile phone with a good camera. Your suggestions are most welcome. A reconditioned mobile would be acceptable. Any advice? Uh, Okay, so a few things uh, here, right? Firstly, if you wanted to buy a new phone that has a good camera that won't break the bank, the Samsung A54 is excellent. It has really good spec. The camera is phenomenal. The battery is great. 
Um, and that is a really good lower tier mobile phone that would tick all the boxes for you. When it comes to a reconditioned or refurbished phone, the great news is that there are so many retailers out there doing them now. But you do want to make sure that you go to a reputable one. So, for example, uh, if you're after a reconditioned or refurbished iPhone, Swappy.ie are excellent. Um, there's also Mintplus.ie. They do both iPhone and Android devices. Uh, and they are very reputable. I, I know quite a few of my friends and family who've bought phones from Mintplus and have been very, very happy. What you do need to look out for is the condition of the phone. So somewhere like Mint Plus or Swappy will tell you if something is in excellent condition, if it's in mint condition, if it's in okay condition and so on. Uh, so you'd know exactly what you're going to get. Also, when you buy from a reputable retailer like Swappy or Mint Plus, they will give you a warranty for the phone. So if anything goes wrong, you'll be able to go back within a year. It'll also come in a box and you get the charger cable. So for me, they would be the two retailers. Uh, if you are going to get a refurbished iPhone, like the iPhone 12, 13 or 14 are all still excellent. A friend of mine here in the office was asking me uh, the other day, she has an iPhone 13 and she asked, should she upgrade to the 15? And I said, no, like there's not a massive difference uh, between the two. Um, so, yeah, I would encourage you to look at the refurbished phones just because they're great for the um, environment but also for your pocket uh, so there are some options for you right next question uh, let's see who we have here now David McSherry has been in touch uh, he says hi Jess on your recommendation I bought the Samsung earbuds live a few years ago and I'm really happy with them unfortunately they're starting to give me problems so I'm looking to buy new buds I heard you say that the Samsung buds pro 2 are very good as well on balance which do you prefer should I stick with the buds live or change so the buds live are the little ones that look like kidney beans and they were my favorites for a long time but like you David I noticed that the battery life just isn't uh, lasting. I've had them for a long time. So I use the Buds Pro 2 and I love them. For me, they are the most comfortable. The sound quality is incredible. The battery life is incredible. I like the little charger case. Um, and for me, they are the best in-ears that are out there from all of the different ones that I have tested. So if you want to stick with Samsung, I would definitely go the Buds Pro 2. Um, because they're excellent and again they've come down in price in a, in the last wee while as well which is great but uh, yeah you absolutely can't go wrong with those uh, but that's it from me this week if you missed any of the show you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast but in the meantime have a great weekend <laughs>